Record is hitted. Hit. It's not the only thing I want to hit. Mm. <sighs> yep. All right. Well, uh... that's a phrase these days, you know, the, the, the punchable face. That's like a thing. <laughs> I, you know, I've ever since I've been around on this planet, because <laughs> I came from another one, apparently. Um, I, that's been something that's been near and dear to my soul. You know, whether I knew to say the phrase punchable face, I've always felt that way about some people, <laughs> you know, that was like, you oh yeah, there's, you can like first impression, you look at someone and you just, your chimp is activated right away. <laughs> yes. That, by the way, was quite the unpopping of the cork. Uncorking of the pop. <laughs> yeah, whatever. <laughs> um, Once you pop, you can't stop. Mm. <laughs> it's like... we need. I need I, all of the things <laughs> to get through tonight. It's funny as hell. Because Ryan came up with the topic. Just listening to you, though, it's not like you're loading a gun to shoot yourself or anything, but it does feel like some kind of action movie where you're like, all right, you know, like you're sharpening your knife or blade or whatever, and then you're putting the bullets in the chamber. (laughs) I don't know why it makes me think that. It's like some kind of action movie. You're like gearing up for the final scene. Could could you say I'm... Getting loaded up. <laughs> In continuation of the mega punnage from last time. Although I do notice that as the day, depending on how many sips you've had, actually, but as the the episode goes on, your your punning starts to decline. You're you're starting out In, strong. In quality. No, or in just in quantity. In quantity, yeah, for sure. Ah. Anyway. One might suspect the reverse. Welcome to the Toddler's Philosophy <laughs> Unknown Length episode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, what is it? The uh, Tomb of the Unknown Length episode. Anyway. Yeah. We'll find out. You all better just keep listening, except they all got to see the fucking timestamp at the beginning. This might be a short. This might be the longest episode we've ever done. We'll see if we can get wound up. Yeah, we don't know how long this is going to be at the moment because, you know, we don't know. Uh, Anyway, yeah. um, yeah, Even though we've already... I hope everybody's bought their tickets for (laughs) listening to us talk about this. Oh, I thought you were going to say bought we their... sold out a stadium. I I thought you were going to say bought their tickets for Peterson Zizek, and I'd be like, what a segue. Um, yeah, I feel bad just saying that. Um, <laughs> uh, do you want a one, two, three clap? Just one, two, three.
God, you were like three seconds late. That's amazing because I totally felt like when it's when you're doing it. Well, I guess that makes sense because the information's coming into you, and so you're just in time with whatever the signal is, you know. And so to you, it makes perfect sense. Finally, I figured it out. Well, then I can't. I'm not a good candidate for talking about this topic if I'm open to new information. Mm. Does well, that count as a pun? I don't. I mean, it sounds. It, does. it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I'm Harland Overboard Grant. And I'm Ryan. <laughs> Ryan, who doesn't like pauses unless he makes them. That's right. Because they're for dramatic effect, and not for gathering my thoughts. And what the hell are we talking about tonight, Mr. McKenna. <laughs> well, I we're just gonna start. You ready? And I'm gonna throw something out there. And <laughs> I think you and I might agree on this statement, but I don't know if anybody who would listen would agree or if this would be like news to them if they're thinking, What? you know, and so I'm kinda I'm not sure how this is gonna sound. Well, yeah, let's get them to yell at their radios and maybe send us some hate mail or something. Nobody sends us any fan mail or hate mail. So let's rile these fuckers up. <laughs> you, yeah, that was that's going to be like a big, you know, chest thumping to just like a whimper. All right. Um, or something. Okay, are you ready? I am ready. <laughs> you are ready. Good. Okay. Here it is. Ideas are crap now, today, because idea makers are not "quote unquote" free. Then they're constrained. I know, and there's a lot to unpack in that, but that's the statement. Idea makers are not free. Something like that. Is that the that's the thesis? Okay. Well, ideas. So are you're crap, saying yeah. ideas in 2019, America, English speaking West, whatever, maybe all of Earth. They're of lower quality than you think they could be or than you'd like them to be. And your explanation or a proposal of perhaps why our ideological climate is so inclement is that idea makers are not free. <laughs> so, is that right? Yeah. I mean, they're not, right, you know, so free and What do you very... mean? Yeah. What do you mean by not free? Just that they're constrained by various aspects of the world that they live in that does not allow or incentivize them to dawdle. You know, everybody's got to hustle. And there's just, you know, not a lot of putzing going on. Everybody's probably feeling a little stressed, a little stretched, a little strapped for all kinds of types of assets, whether that be financial or just flat-out shelter or emotional or they're feeling, you know, surrounded by people who are not on their team or whatever it is. People are feeling... Too many putzes, not enough putzing. Yeah, basically. 
so that's kind of what I mean by the idea makers are not free. Um, and I can go into more, but I'm, I'm, I'm also open to back and forth here. So, uh, you know what I mean? Well, on first draft, that makes sense to me, appeals to me, I'm as you would probably expect. Yeah. Um, and I would just add a bunch more layers on top of it. Yes, you have the economic and social ones, and then you have like, well, you're also constrained by your language and your genes and, you know, the body you're stuck in. And, you know, there's all layers and layers of constraint. But I think in this case, we're mostly emphasizing these sort of daily life constraints, right? I think so, yeah. And I think daily life constraints... Acquisition and maintenance of what one needs to continue living at all, let alone trying to develop and expound upon ideas. Right. Meeting those, quote-unquote, needs or whatever first is paramount. For many, I would argue. And those needs, like we said, could be economic. But they could be social. They don't have to be just, you know, related to cash and cash flow. And, yeah, I guess that's... Uh, I, I had another thought I was going to angle around to, but eventually I'm sure it'll show up. So, yeah, where do you want to go next? Do you want to... Well, I mean, I can... Tell me what the ideas are that are on your mind, or... Yeah, I can do that. More about this freedom, yeah? Let me just do that a little bit. Um, I'll give you just a little bit of a... um, A little bit of a framework. There's going to be some... There's going to be two frameworks that are operating. And I'll explain to you one framework, and I'm not sure how I'm going to get around to the second framework, but it's equally as important to anything I would say. So the first framework I will describe is, I've mentioned before this guy, uh, Peter Turchin, right? And he yeah. is a, he was a population biologist. I mean, I guess you could still say he's a, I don't fucking know. Um, he was a practitioner of population biology research. And then once he had reached the pinnacle of all that glory, um, and he wrote a bunch of, uh, you know, books and papers and was obviously well respected in the field he moved on to history and so he started just applying his quantitative scientific approach to history and they uh he and and a number of colleagues and this has been going on at least since like 2000 or something like that that he's been like really focusing on this style of research and it's pretty much all he does i don't think he even bothers with uh the general biological stuff anymore. So anyway, one of the things that came about and probably through no coincidence in biology, he studied population cycles. And so one of the things that he's noticed in the data that they've collected, um, and it's hard to do data collection for historical stuff, you know, Um, but they've done, I think, a fairly okay job of trying to get proxies for population size and various kinds of um, uh, data that might be available from historical records that they can use to understand 
what's happening in general. And so one of the things that he's noted and a number of his colleagues is that there's cycles in our society with respect to things like, um, like, you know, well-being and whatnot and however you would define well-being and all that kind of stuff. But they have various dimensions of well-being, uh, like employment prospects, wage relative to the GDP per capita, health, family, all these kinds of things. And one of the things they noticed is that, you know, just as you would, you might expect if you knew the history, and so this probably was the scent that these guys followed, was that, you know, if you go just say in recent uh, American history, um, if you go back from today and you just start heading back in time, it starts to increase all of these things, like all these uh, well-being uh, measures. And so you go up probably by the 1960s or whatever, you've got all of these various well-being measures being at a high point, right? And then it starts to decline and it goes way down till you get to the late 1800s where that's the Gilded Age. And so it kind of peaks post-World War II and it goes back and then you get these, you know, employment prospects, relative wage um, or wage relative to GDP per capita, any various health uh, measures and family style, you know, dynamic measures that they've come up with. Anyway, I'm not trying to dwell on this too long, but the idea is that it kind of curves up and down. And then as you go pre-Civil War in the United States, things are up again. So if you're going forward, then it's an up to pre-Civil War. Post-Civil War, you're in the Gilded Age. You go back up into this post-World War II and then you go. You're coming back down to where we are today. And so, so we're on one of the downswings or drops. Yeah, we are definitely on a downswing. It's also a bit unfortunate that this downswing is going. You know, each downswing is kind of coinciding with even worse. You know, environmental deterioration potentially things like that. But you know, that's besides the point right now. But, uh, so that's the idea. So today, so I'm going to use the Gilded Age to compare real quick to what, you know, some of the, and I'm just going to use like science and academia, I guess, if you will, for right now as a sort of, you know, hey, this is how I'm going to enter us into the fray of ideas and idea makers and all that kind of stuff. Um, so today there's obviously a few jobs, you know, employment prospects are low for all kinds of uh, uh, people in the, the various strata. You got the upper class, middle class, lower class, middle class is shrinking, yada, yada. But there's also like, you know, lots, I mean, I see it all the time and I think it's just a, f it's a fact of life for academics, especially in science, to have their grant proposals they write usually to like uh, National Institutes of Health or the National Science Foundation that these grants get rejected, you know, and it happens all the time. And moreover, there's this idea that you've got publisher-perish kind of pressures on academics where if they don't publish enough, if they don't get the money for the research, if they don't do all these things, then they're out of a job. And their job is more or less based upon that than it is based upon, you know, what, if you're a good teacher or whatever in the university or institution that you're working at or whatever it is. Whatever other functions you might serve uh, that in the past may have been, uh, you know, considered important as well or whatever to your job and may come into their weighing whether or not you keep your job if you're going your tenure track or whatever. 
or if you're just up for review for anything, you know, these are the kinds of things that um, would have been weighed a little more heavily, I think. And today that's just not the case. It's much more cutthroat and everybody is, you know, on the one hand, there's more people and there's more people moving into this bracket of not only just having a high school education, but a college education. And then beyond that post, you know, graduate and postgraduate and all that kind of stuff. And so you have more and more people entering the fray into the, you know, for employment and there's fewer and fewer jobs or, you know, the jobs are fewer or the, even if it's the same number of jobs, there's still too many people. We've overshot it. And so the other thing I remember somebody saying to me, well, I know it's been said in a number of different situations, but I remember was this mathematician I was talking to once because I was talking to her about something. It was while I was in school and she was talking about how, you know, back in the seventies, for instance, you could still get eke out a small loan or loan, I mean, grant from, uh, you know, one of the various, uh, in, you know, uh, grant sourcing agencies in the government or even other, other places. But today everything's really big gadget science. Everything's, you know, uh, putting a rover on Mars or, you know, I used to work on the joy days resolution. I mentioned that in the housekeeping last time. And, you know, one of the things that they, you know, we were doing was just very much big gadget science where you just take some big device drill a hole in the ground, stick the thing in the ground. It's supposed to measure trillions of different things and terabytes of data and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, who, I mean, all they're looking to do is even just get some basic, simple information. It's just that really fine detail. And, and I remember watching the, the talks that the, some of these lead researchers gave. And I remember just thinking like, what are you doing? Like, like even like I was like, you know, educated in science, you know, you, you, I, my master's and all that kind of stuff. And the, I, even I'm just kind of like, what is going on? Like, this is anyway. So, and I remember people talking about, well, this big gadget science, and they don't really care about, you know, just if, you know, you can go and make it special anyway. However, just to compare it then back to the Gilded Age, which is, I guess you could say that, you know, like I was saying, this last downturn in the in the West's secular cycle of, you know, this Gilded Age, it comes down to this idea that there was, you know, that kind of comes out strong in this point in time of pure versus applied science. And uh, there's a paper I've, you know, looked at that I liked um, by Paul Lucier, who's at the Department of History in Brown University, I think. I don't, I don't know if he's still there or not, but paper's called The Origins of Pure and Applied Science in the Gilded Age America. And one of the things I'll, I guess I'll quote real quick of this guy, and then I'm going to quote a quote, if, you got, if you're okay with that. Go for it! Okay. All right. So he talks about, he says, quote, and, and this is in his abstract, which is nice because he's good at summarizing things, which is really rare in abstracts. But he says, quote-unquote pure was the preference of scientists who wanted to emphasize their non-pecuniary motives and their distance from the marketplace. Quote-unquote applied was the choice of scientists who accepted patents and profits as other possible returns on their research. In general, the frequent conjoining of pure and applied bespoke the inseparable relations of science and capitalism in the Gilded Age. So he talks about this one guy who was the, I guess, he was just a physicist, and it was when the Johns Hopkins had just been, you know, created the university. 
<clears throat> and he wrote something at a American Association of the for the Advancement of Science in 1883. At one of the annual meetings, he wrote something. I gave a talk, and he called a plea for pure science. So this one's a little long, but I'm going to just put it out there because I think I'm trying to set up like a basis here a little bit. The guy, Henry Rowland, and I'm quoting it a quote uh, from this guy, again, Paul Lucier. American science is a thing of the future and not of the present or past. And the proper course for one in my position is to consider what must be done to create a science of physics in this country, rather than to call telegraphs, electric lights, and such conveniences by the name of science. I do not wish to underrate the value of all these things. The progress of the world depends on them, and he is to be honored who cultivates them successfully. And yet, it is not an uncommon thing, especially in American newspapers, to have the applications of science confounded with pure science, and some obscure American who steals the ideas of some great mind of the past and enriches himself by the application of the same to domestic uses is often lauded above the great originator of the idea, who might have worked out hundreds of such applications had his mind possessed the necessary element of vulgarity. I have often been asked, which was the more important to the world, pure or applied science? To have the application of science, the science itself must exist. End quote. That was his answer to that question. But I kind of thought about the idea that, you know, here you have, you know, people like in the Gilded Age, you could have, you know, you have like Thomas Edison and Alexander Graham Bell uh, and, um, you know, what's his, uh, Tesla, whatever his first name was. I don't remember. Um, but here you have these people who are, you know, coming up with all these various gadgets, if you will. And then, you know, how many scientists from the Gilded Age, you know, can we really point out, you know, that are of that level? And I kind of think, well, one of them is probably Einstein. And then I, <laughs> I haven't really thought too much further than that. But here's the thing. I can think of the other guys much faster than I can think of someone like, you know, like a whole host of these, you know, quote unquote, pure science people. And today it just seems like we have a similar kind of thing where we've got big gadget science. We've got lots of grant rejections for probably really cool, clever research, but they don't meet whatever the boxes that need to be checked off. And we have this publisher parish type pressure situation just today. I think it was today um, regarding publications, for instance, the University of California system decided to not renew their uh, uh, account, if you will, with um, Elsevier, which is one of the major publishing companies that has all of these journals under their banner that you have to pay for. And part of it was because they wanted some part of the deal to be able to let the researchers um, not have to pay for um, having their article open access or whatever. And I don't remember all the simple details, but of course Elsevier is in the business of making money, not in the business of advancing science or whatever, you know. They probably say that. 
but that's ultimately they're in the business of you know making the monies so that's kind of the overarching thing putting it in this peter turchin secular cycle framework and then within each up within each upswing i would say you get the resource enrichment from episodic synchrony stuff and we can go into that later or whatever but that's the other framework that i was also working out of mhm to me this whole thing sounds i don't know if well you can tell me of course if this makes sense to you or not but i'm hearing in it tonight at this presentation mm. the entire ethos of the Doddler's philosophy all the way back to episode zero. And our dichotomy of Doddler's and Hustler's would be what is loosely analogous to pure and applied science and or philosophy. In other contexts, one will hear me railing against the adjective of purity in some kind of Kantian or religious context or moral context or whatever, like, oh, nothing's pure, blah, blah, blah. But <laughs> in this context, I think it makes sense and means something very different that would it be oversimplifying to say that it's an economic distinction and applied science values, cares about, is influenced by dollars and quote-unquote pure science is not. Uh, in right. theory, ideally, right? I would agree, yes. Absolutely. And to me, that's a lot of what we meant back in the olden days about our distinction between dawdlers and hustlers, that that was one of the, what I would claim is an advantage of the dawdle, is that if you are pure in your intentions and aims and pursuits that it seems likely to me that your creations would be of a higher quality than if your ultimate pursuit were money and the rest of it were somehow or other a route to get the money you know, well, I'm going to turn my ideas into money by, for example, writing a book or giving a lecture or going on a tour uh, where we have conversations in front of 5,000 person <laughs> audiences. Uh. Yeah. If that's what you're up to, then one of your considerations about, well, what are we going to talk about tonight is going to be, well, what will people pay 45 bucks a ticket? to hear a conversation about? Will right. it be argumentation theory or the emergence reduction debate? Or the, <laughs> pro, perhaps not. What yeah. do people, what will they pay to hear? And then that influences the ideas and their expression. I don't know, are you see, is that analogous to you at all? This gilded yeah. age, pure versus applied and the dawdle hustle stuff and the and how that can is that kind of your point how, yeah if you're interested for sure in money, i mean i i didn't yeah yeah i didn't think about it in those terms i guess maybe i did and i just wasn't thinking about it as explicitly maybe even mentioned 
dawdle and hustle at some point. Who knows? But yeah, I think that's the idea. I also think that I've read somewhere that people, somebody at least, or a couple of people, I don't know, have met, have called today the new Gilded Age. And so that's all, that all um, squares with my thinking. Now, I don't know about this for sure, and maybe you don't either, but is the point of this phrase, the Gilded Age, to kind of talk about how there's a veneer of shiny gold attractiveness, (laughs) but that it's a patina, it's just a surface thing, and it has little depth, is that kind of the point? I think that's that's the point. Uh, Mark Twain and a couple other people wrote that the book, The Gilded Age, and then it had some subtitle. And the idea was that a golden age is gold through and through, you know? And okay, a gilded compared age... compared to a golden age, all right. Yeah, a gilded age is just the, sh- the gold, whatever they put on the top of some rusty rod It's just iron. a little gold flake. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I think the idea is that underneath that shine is not a lot, you know? And... I think that's what they were trying to say, perhaps, about society during that period of time, in that post-Civil War period of time, where there were people taking advantage of profits and all that in a way that, um, as this one guy said, was quite vulgar, you know? Um, and so I think, but that's that's all in support of this notion that, you know, I guess you could say it a number of different ways. The way I started out saying it was that ideas are crap now because idea makers are not free. And maybe it's, you know, uh, dawdling is hard in a gilded age, you know, uh, something Ooh, like nice that. bumper sticker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's print up the t-shirts and sell them to our vast audience. Yes. So, and of course we, co- oh, as typical doddlers, we think of this, in March. <laughs> Usually they're like, oh yeah, Black Friday, holiday season. <laughs> We're like, yeah, it's March. <sighs> well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's the whole point. It's like, that's where people's, where hustlers' minds go. They're like, yeah, exactly. ooh, that was a nice turn of phrase. Maybe I can make someone pay me for having said it. Mm-hmm. Right. Which adds a lot of pressure because once they do... Yeah, and it's and that's I guess one of the differences. One is you know you're just going along, dawdling along, living, talking, and then notice oh that was kind of a good one. Versus <laughs> meditating on okay, I now need to develop a perfect T-shirt slogan, and like that's what you concentrate yeah. on. You're probably if that if you're looking for a T-shirt slogan, not going to come up with a very good idea, argument, invention. Breakthrough, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. You're just gonna. They're well, just I mean, a bunch and that's of kind sloganeers. Of, well, you see it a lot today. Like I was seeing somebody. You know, all you had to do is go on Twitter to see all the atrocities of the world. So you know, sometimes it's a little biasing, but you know, whatever. Um, it's hard to not. Anyway, whatever. Uh, but like I saw somebody was saying something about how there's somebody going around selling other people's books. They've figured out a end around or whatever it is to not even have to purchase uh, the material, but they can literally sell uh, electronic copies of people's books that are published in, you know, like with actual publishing companies and stuff. 
So the official types of books. And then they don't, they just rake in the, the profits themselves. So they're just literally selling other people's stuff, like whatever, you know what I mean? Like they're just, so you, you know, you wrote a book, Penguin or whatever publishes it. Penguin doesn't get a cent from these sales and neither does the author or anybody else involved with it. Just the person who has the ability to, you know, uh, uptake the data, right? And then have obviously has uh, the ability to make a website and then sell that. You know, it's just like people more or less making something out of other people's hard work and then cashing in. But, uh, yeah, so, so the idea about with all these, like, cycles is that, you know, the... I mean, I have this way of, uh, I, I mean, I, I guess you could say it's just sort of my explanation for perhaps why, you know, these circumstances arise. And I did write something for our little website. Gosh, it was in back in January, mid-January. And it was primarily about just, you know, I was trying to talk about progress because I thought of stuff and was making connections between various things. I did have a chunk in there where I did talk about this resource enrichment scenario that if you go back to whatever that episode number is, I want to say it's 16. I don't know why. Uh, That episodic synchrony, this idea I have, and uh, I tripped over myself while Harland was like trying to help me out with that little short on scarcity. But anyway... And I just have this, you know, it's not necessarily my idea. It's just, it's, so it's not like the episodic synchrony thing is, but this idea of what the effects of resource enrichment on whatever, on a population of things, let's say, I think is applicable to society. And at the same time, it's not a huge one for me necessarily, so I kind of find it sort of a proportional analogy, Harlan, to, you know, when you talk about how, you know, the non-Aristotelian approach, you know, something like identity politics is just this small part of when you talk about identity in general. Identity is, you know, A not A equals A or it doesn't, you know, that kind of thing. It's just a small part of your views, you know. And so I would say my application of this kind of resource enrichment on, you know, a culture of, you know, you know, cultural agents or whatever is just a small part, you know, of the broader thing that I'm trying to say about episodic synchrony. So my uh, general explanation idea is that there's, you know, probably in the last golden age, a you know, pickup, but it's, I think over the course of the whole as well, just because technology and various kinds of aspects of our society keep improving, you know, to a, to a degree. I mean, I'm not saying it in the same way as uh, Steven Pinker, I don't think, you know, but I am saying it in this like, you know, well, you know, we can fly jets at Mach whatever and land fucking rovers on Mars, which we couldn't do back in 1412. You know, it's like... And, you know, it's kind of cool because we can go even further and faster, right? It's something that, you know, you couldn't do before you eventually get there. So there have been some changes uh, along the way. 
uh, we've been able to explore the horizons. So I would say that just if you think about it, like we've had technological advancements and that these technological advancements more or less act as sort of like newly formed islands, if you will. And so I'm kind of, my analogies are all over the place. But if you think about the analogy of a newly formed island and it's developed, say, some soils and it's got some trees or whatever and some animals, say, land on it, even, the, you know, the plants, etc. All of a sudden it becomes this new amount of land and... um it's fairly unconquered, and so those that arrive there are going to increase in their population size, and so they're going to grow quite a bit. And so I think of technology as sort of, it can be like this, like, you know, the internet was one of these big-ass continents that was suddenly discovered, you know, quote-unquote, in the vernacular of the way we look at manifest destiny and shit, but it's this area that we've been able to go to and then explore kind of unimpeded and making more of it as well as we move along. And in doing so, I think it's allowed quite a bit of the variation in society to kind of rise up, you know? And so there's not a ton of selection pressure on how people behave in this space. Similarly, and but not exactly on the same, you know, uh, tangent line or whatever, um, you could say that a lot of medical advances have improved how long people can live, whether or not people can have more kids or kids at all or whatever. And uh, that has also increased populations in uh, various ways as you know, third world countries or you know, developing countries start to improve uh, you know, their standards of living, et cetera. Even something as simple as creating out-of-car parts incubators increases the or decreases the mortality rates of kids in third world countries like i think it was sudan one of the places in particular so it's like these kinds of things come along and they help and they you know all of a sudden those who wouldn't have been around say are and this is all part of my thing you know and so it's this resource enrichment and technology kind of provides that and i think the internet in particular certainly has provided that uh, kind of thing. So there's sort of this Malthusian growth with relaxed selection, or I would say almost tolerated variation or an increase in toler you know, in tolerance of all the variants that might exist. It, it doesn't have to be new novel variants that never existed before that arise. It could just be standing variation that just can live, you know? And then eventually the idea is there's a capacity that is approached or what have you. And things start to get serious again. And you, I'm saying through something like nearest neighbor effects based on, um, you know, where you come from. So those things in the past and whatever is in your vicinity. And of course, when we're talking about the internet and stuff, vicinity can mean a lot of different things. But just whatever your access is with other cultural agents and how you interact, you know, this can become uh, reinforcing in its own right. And you can start to really diversify, you know, groups more or less within what was maybe at one time kind of one big old bell curve or whatever. And most of the people were in this one spot and then it kind of faded out. Now you might have more than one mode, uh, you know, and it's not just one particular peak. Uh, so you have multiple peaks perhaps. And so I kind of think in some ways you see that, 
quite a bit where, you know, uh, one of the, in this write-up thing, I was kind of just listing off things that I could think of, but like there's things that didn't really exist before that were maybe part of the fringe in culture that today are much you know they you know certainly have received a lot of t- lot more tolerance that people feel comfortable enough and it's almost like they become part of the vernacular of the culture if you will and so things like you know uh furries were you know people that dress up as like you know almost like mascots or whatever but they they love the anthropomorphism of like uh, Disney cartoons and things like that. And so they want to have this world where they get together and, you know, they, you know, or not world, but this, you know, they get together as a group and they, whatever they do, sometimes it became a thing where everyone kind of made fun of it because they thought it was a sexual thing, but apparently it's not necessarily. And then of course there's lots of other things you could say, you know, Trekkies could be <laughs> something like along those lines. Uh, you know, any of the like comic con type stuff where people are doing cosplay, which is certainly not something that people used to do and on a regular basis. But I, you know, uh, there's even like, um, I've interacted with at least one person who claimed they had a tulpa and a tulpa is like some kind of imaginary friend, but the tulpa is not treated as imaginary. They're just over time treated as like a, a person. Or, you know, whatever. They're given some kind, you know, maybe even almost to the point where they, they need rights, you know, or whatever. I know I'm going on. I'm trying to be as succinct and uh, concise as possible. But, you know, these things, I think, back in the day may have been just, again, part of fringe, part of counterculture, not flaunted or whatever. You know, if you go to San Diego for Comic-Con, it's just like people dressing up pretty crazily, you know, in... in ways that I just figure that night, you know, in 1960, they might not have. So, you know, but you also have people being, I, I guess I'd say it has to do with communication. You know, you can receive information, you can connect with people, you can exchange and reinforce each other. So like flat earthers, I mean, there's a fucking documentary on like people who are honest to goodness, like Yes, the earth is flat, you fucking idiots, you know, like, and it's on Netflix, you know, it's just like, okay. So it's, there's a tolerance of a lot of this kind of stuff. And we're hitting this kind of capacity where suddenly the tolerance is no longer. And, you know, to kind of hint at some kind of, there was a media frenzy about the woman who wouldn't sell a gay couple, I think it was a gay couple, a cake, you know, I kind of think it's the... That would be my thing to say about it. It's like suddenly no one wants to make a cake for each other unless you're in my group. And so that's just like an increase in intolerance as there's less and less room uh, to explore. And uh, part of that probably has to do with various other avenues of stress that are being felt in society. And I think I do have things to say about that, but... I'm going to slow down for a second. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. I'm just like, meh, 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 all fucking day long. <sighs> this part also makes sense to me. The thing that stuck out the most about that section was the simple comment claim that technological innovations, especially communication technologies, especially the internet slash social media, 
has drastically created a surplus of information transmission and storage such that more ideas than previously are more accessible than previously. And what was once a, you know, this cool thing you'd find on the back page of an alternative newspaper in an anarchist bookstore on Division Street. Right. (laughs) Now is just in your face on YouTube, on Netflix, on a podcast, on a, it's just everywhere, on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So because of all these new things, now everyone has a chance to have a voice, which means, you know, okay, so if if 90% of people can access Twitter and get on there, and then 9% of those who do actually get some followers, and 1% of that have a viral tweet. Right. That's still hundreds of thousands of people and way more than ever before. Yeah. And so our standards are going to be lower. Sla- plus or slash, we've also got the, you know, Gutenberg constructed concept of there being a public. Well, if you've got this public, there's going to be some members of it who are who tend to favor any given idea. So even if you put one out there that is of low quality, our kind of trope example being Flat Earth, whatever, um, you're still going to get an audience now. Whereas before, they the people who would believe the low-quality idea and adopt it and give it airtime and or economic benefit wouldn't even encounter it in the first place. Yeah, exactly. So then you've got the entire discourse about how the internet makes us, instead of exposing us to new ideas the way that it seems to be operating, at least at this phase of the cycle, is more cliquish and binning and everybody's just in their little tribe that they found on the internet and they only hear the ideas they already thought and that whole thing. Right. And so part of a lot of this, you know diversification if you want to call it that i would just because of the idea that is multimodal suddenly across the variation that it, that is present in society is you know it can come about like well i mean here's the the one thing that comes also out of this research by peter turchin is that you know during these gilded ages you have what he calls elite overproduction and I'll just use to stay on the you know topic of academics or whatever that you know there's more people getting PhDs than there are say tenure track jobs in universities and even those that actually obtain some kind of hey I got an assistant professorship at this university they still have to go through the ropes and they still have to you know publish they still have to get grant money they still have to do all these things before they can be sold okay, well, now, you know, you are on the track uh, to, to, you know, to really be able to earn your tenure. Now you're an associate professor or whatever. And then finally, if they keep up that work, they become tenured, they're professor, they're quote-unquote untouchable, even though today's world, I don't know if that really is 
I don't know if that works like t- today, but I remember lots of teachers that I had that didn't lots. I knew some teachers that had that never made tenure and they were just gone, you know. And I think about like that Thaddeus Russell guy, and I don't know all the details of his story or whatever, but he created, you know, Renegade University and he's, you know, basically like, you know, fuck you, I'm out of here. You know, it's this it's like elite overproduction. And so people start to fragment. There's a sort of elite fragmentation that occurs. Some of that is, you know, clear when you talk about like party polarization, like when you talk about politics or something like that. But people in general, I mean, I even think of like Trump, you know, for a long time, he's always been on the margin. And he was like, well, fuck you, I'm going to do it my way and work my way up into the presidency by probably doing something maybe others did, but not as, uh, here's that word again, but as vulgarly or whatever. Like it's, you know, people in this elite bracket starting to bicker amongst each other to an extent about, you know, well, I want in, you know, because the the wealthy, they have the money, but they want influence too. They don't just want the money. They, you know, they want maybe more money and maybe the influence will afford them that. But in general, just to say, well, you know, I got a cool 50 million in the bank. I'm never going to spend it all. I'm just going to go hang out and dawdle. Like that does not seem like the thing that most rich people want to do. And especially those who make it into that billionaire bracket. So that was one of the things that I was thinking about um, was I remember there's that thing I told you I had a little uh, analogy idea um, about where I was comparing billionaires to like the Greek gods. (laughs) Do you remember that at all? Well, you're going to remind me right now. I am. And I'm going to remind you. So whoever edits this, <laughs> it's going to have fun with this one through the actual correspondence that we did. So, and I was thinking, even if it's not me, if you edit this thing, one of us can have like a low pitch voice and the other one can have a high pitch voice. <laughs> we go back and forth. Anyway. Um, so, so R it's Ryan, it's me talking or typing. I have this little thing rolling around in my head. Not developed at all, but I wonder what, if anything, is there. Dot, dot, dot. Thought. Billionaires today, the rich always, are behaving like the Greek gods. And many people are behaving like the devout Greek citizens back in the day. Perhaps this is always the way it is with power dynamics, like we mentioned in the authority short. But here are some of the gross parallels. Like billionaires today, or vice versa, Greek gods were fickle and vain, but powerful. They bickered amongst each other with respect to their own views of justice and the way the world should be. They had histories with each other mere mortals were not privy to. If they didn't like what one god was doing because it went against their interests, they wouldn't fight each other, but intervene on the affairs of the other god in terms of its dealings with the mere mortals, and so on. I kind of like it. But I have lots of thoughts right now, so I'm not 100% in the mode of fleshing it out or making it make much sense uh, or as much sense as possible. I like it too on first impression. I don't know much or follow much that of that subculture, but what you're saying seems good to me. I think it's worth developing. Okay, I will. We'll see where it goes. <laughs> to the mountaintop.
LOL. Also, the Greek gods had specific powers over certain domains that were influential on the mortal world, like the ocean and love, things that mattered to the you know, Greek communities. Today, it's different uh, communications and tech, like TV, cable, internet, phones, news, or food, like coffee, fast food, or even corn and sugar. Or the marketplace, like stocks, etc., assets, whatever. And mortals, quote-unquote, pray to the gods to make their world more, quote-unquote, user-friendly with apparent, quote-unquote, feedback. But it's probably more like a mix of market research and just forcing people to have something. Yeah, yeah. Look, it's an analogy. Or maybe I'm trying to say that gods are, were always just the rich and powerful in our societies. Hunter-gatherers dealt with spirits of the hill and the mountain or whatever, the river. And these were just basically nature, which held the quote-unquote riches with the shit people could hunt and gather, but also these things could create floods and fire and volcanic eruptions. Rich people also often live at higher up elevations, if there are any. So they may look down upon the people. Mount Olympus, anyone? To the mountaintop. When the powerful leaders of the world get together, it's called a summit. Jesus. <laughs> Confusion emoji. Am I wrong? I don't know about the living at elevation or not. Or the entire story of what are called summits, but yeah, it could be. <laughs> Includes G8 summit link. Footnotes to Greek civilization. All the expensive hotel rooms and apartments are at the top of hotel mid and high rises. From Wikipedia, penthouses are, quote, an apartment or unit on the highest floor of an apartment building, condominium, or hotel, end quote. And, quote, penthouse apartments are considered to be at the top of their markets and are generally the most expensive with expansive views, large living spaces, and top-of-the-line amenities, end quote. And I go, fucking gods! Now I know what the Jeffersons were all excited about. And I included Jefferson's opening song link from YouTube. Yeah, yeah, okay. So anyway, <laughs> so that was uh, that idea that, you know, they're kind of like, you know, this, the Greek gods or whatever. They're, they're, you know, fickle and bickering. And one of the examples, I was looking up a, um, you know, just stuff that I was looking up. And, you know, in, in some ways, one of the things that uh, was noted was there was this I sent you this movie link um, for a, a, it was a PBS. Uh, well, it was a movie that was uh, aired on PBS, and because it's PBS, you can just watch it. You can stream public broadcasting system for any of you not in the United States who aren't sure what PBS means. And uh, anyway, it was called Park Avenue, and the idea is it's about you know, it's a documentary about Park Avenue. There's a Park Avenue in Manhattan. And, you know, at the top of those penthouses live, you know, uh, David Koch and all kinds of hedge funders and stuff like that. And there's a Park Avenue in, I think, Brooklyn or the Bronx. And, of course, there it's like 700,000 people under the poverty level, you know. And anyway, the idea that I learned was that so it kind of looks down on people like David Koch who donates a lot of money to the PBS, you know, and, you know, it has an influence. And so there's a little bit of controversy there. But the 
film itself, one of the, you know, financial partners or whatever for the film is like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. (laughs) That's like one God is like, (laughs) you jerk, you know, like, and the other one's like, God damn you computer jerk, you know, or whatever, you know, like, and so I kind of think that's sort of like, they're using the, they're influencing the mortals, you know, and living these extraordinary lavish lives at the mountaintop and just bickering up there with each other. And just, you know, that's the analogy. So, um, here, here's where, uh, the intellectual dark web enters the fray. And I guess to some level a veneer of conspiracy. Oh, Um, Jesus. (laughs) It took 58 minutes to get here. When I was all hyped at the beginning and like, oh, we're going to... I thought that's what this whole thing was going to be. Was getting into it about the intellectual dark web. But luckily, we were little more uh, wonky than just getting into that. Anyways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I provide context. Or, you know, I kind of figure that they're just a small cog in in the overall thing that I was thinking. You know, which, you know, is really, you know. It's the, not the size of the cog, you know. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> the, um, it's not the size of the cog in the fight. It's the size of the fight in the cog. Is that what you're basically trying to say? Nice. Um, put that on a t-shirt as well. Uh, but the idea, you know, the overarching, you know, theme here, you know, is to a degree, you know, the secular cycle type thing. And so this is just, you know, whoever plays the role plays the role when it's their turn to go on stage. And I think to an extent, there is this sort of, now that we're at this point, where we're approaching capacity. People aren't going to bake you a cake. And there's going to be people like the IDWers, who I think in a way are here to say, (laughs) status quo, everything's fine. You know, like, I think that's their general approach. They're not like this. It's not an idea revolution. If you watch that Ruben guy, it's a, you know, it's a, you know, the, Things were great back in the day revolution. You know, it's a, in, in many ways, that's how I see it. Um, so when you have people who are coming out and being like, call, like I'm a, my gender is per, you know, you got people like Joe Rogan are like, there's a penis and a pussy and that's the way it is. You know, like, <laughs> and like, so there's a pushback, you know, like this is the status quo. I learned this from my friend or high school or whatever. And so, you know, but all these people, Pinker, Peterson, I love the thing about Pinker and Peterson that that um, Amy Tresme or Tremsey or I don't remember her name. Fuck. Anyway, she's like her own deal on Twitter, I guess. Um, but she was interviewed uh, and I wish I could remember. It's called something about like the left revolution or the something. It's a podcast. I'm terrible at this. Anyway, um, oh, yeah, you I you had me listen to that too. I don't remember their names either. Great. Well, we're but you know what? One ought not even <laughs> mention the competition unless you're punching up. 
<laughs> I suppose everybody's up from us. I don't know. The Revolutionary Left podcast or something? There I you think? go. Yeah, the it was Revolutionary called? Left. Yes. I don't remember her name, though. Amy Trez something. Trez Leches. Anyway. And, but I liked one of the things that she said about, she said, like, if Steven Pinker is trying to depoliticize politics, Peterson's trying to depoliticize young people. Like, you know, just the whole, like, make your bed and shut up. You know, it's almost like a version of, like, kids are meant to be seen, not heard, you know, or whatever. <laughs> and uh, so there's that sort of the IDW, sort of the status quo pushback, you know, this sort of, wait a minute. And she, that girl, Amy, even said at one point, if I, and I don't have the full quote, but it's just the partial quote. But she literally said, if the left wants to win. So it's like, okay, this is just a you know competition now at this point between various groups and everybody's feeling the pressure, you know, and they're like, God damn it, they can't have it anymore. We want it now. And whoever we is, it could be anything. <clears throat> there is an attempt with that intersectionality stuff or whatever. But in general, it's just all these different extremes, you know, the alt-right slash Proud Boys, Antifa, all these different reactions to the world getting suddenly smaller, uh, a lot of fish in, a, you know, in whatever the size of the pond was originally. Um, but here's the thing about the status quo pushback, and I haven't really done a very good job of uh, lining, you know, laying out all these different intellectual dark web members um i figure that anyone who's listening to these kinds of podcasts is maybe quite familiar at this point you know i don't know but i would say that it seems like these intellectual dark webbies have you know if not directly they have some kind of ties and it's hard to say you know well hey man who doesn't have ties to billionaires in some indirect way but in general they do seem to have more ties like, for instance, Eric Weinstein, who is one of our, you know, the only one out of this whole group of people that I think you and I both kind of at least stop for a second, you know, and are like, oh, okay, you know, whatever. You know, he works for Thiel Capital. He's like the managing director. And Peter Thiel is a billionaire who, you know, like back in the 90s wrote a book about like, you know, I don't remember what it was called, the diversity myth, you know, basically like diversity, schmercity, you know, whatever. And, you know, it's just kind of against the PC culture and all that kind of stuff, which is, you know, who isn't, right? But anyway, <laughs> being for PC culture is like, you know, as rare as somebody going, yeah, I'm a hipster. <laughs> you know, like, it's just like, no, nah, it doesn't have it. Everyone's like, I hate being PC. You know, I want to be tough nuts. Anyway, huh. said by someone living in Portland, Oregon. Shut up. So if there were any, you would know them. Mm. I'm saying that's like, true. I'm, no, I'm somewhat see. surprised to hear you say that they're a rare species. Well, that they say that anyone would claim to be a, a, a hipster. That's rare. Right. And I think what's also rare would be. Oh, um, they wouldn't use the terminology. They wouldn't say, I'm in favor of political correctness. Right. No one would be like, oh, yeah, I like... Cause they it's would like say, the, I'm in favor of social justice or something else. Right. And no social justice person would say, I'm a social justice warrior, because it's all derogatory, right? Well, the um, warrior part, I think, is derogatory, but the social justice phrase, right. I think, is 
Social justice genuinely is genuinely used by people, proponents. Right. Exactly. Yeah. But I think that the yeah, the phrase social justice warrior is derogatory. I think hipster at this point is like, you know, just flicking an ant off the table. Yeah. It's like, fuck you, hipster. <laughs> and then also anyone who's like, oh yeah, political correctness, fuck yeah. You know, like no one it's like for some reason these are all things you use against people. They aren't things that people adopt necessarily, it seems. To me. But um so yeah, so they they seem to be or so there's Eric Weinstein and then, you know, this is the conspiracy shit, but I don't know, it doesn't seem like way off. But there's all these, you know, and that's why I sent you that Park Avenue documentary because it shows like how the billionaires can have their fingers dipped deep in like politics, of course. But also, you know, the other big one is media. Like, and I was looking at the various foundations, and, like, there's this one guy, uh, last name is Skull. I don't remember his first name, foolishly enough. Uh, Jeffrey? Jeffrey Skull? Anyway, he has the Skull Foundation, and he was, uh, I think he made his money through eBay. He was the president of eBay at one time. And I don't know uh, beyond if he was the founder of eBay or he's had an era that was awesome or something like that. I don't know. But clearly he did well and he's a billionaire now and on and on. But, you know, a lot of these guys, they just they are trying to influence the world. And one of the main ways to influence the populace is through just media, you know, whatever it is, funding all kinds of media or university departments and whatnot. So that's kind of the, that's what I was thinking. And, and so, um, you know, that one in particular, that documentary Park Avenue, and now it shows like, you know, David Koch and all his, you know, things that he's influencing. And one of the things that he's, or Charles Koch, his brother, so there's David and Charles Koch, and they have Koch Industries and they're, uh, you know, big oil guys. Uh, pr- you know, primarily is where they get, I think, the vast majority of their money. They've, I think, had influences on, say, like Nova, in terms of they give Nova a lot of money, but then all of a sudden the content starts to change a little bit on that particular PBS program. And so also uh, the Rubin Report is financially partnered with uh, the Learning Institute or whatever, which is, you know, on the board and is Charles Koch himself for that particular foundation or whatever institute. But then also a few other people from various Koch-based, you know, foundations, et cetera, are also on the board. And a board's going to have influence. You know, they're not not going to have influence. I just listened to that podcast on the Theranos fraud scandal by Elizabeth Holmes and all the kind of board members she had on hers and they were quite influential. One guy who was, I don't remember his name, unfortunately, but he was some kind of politician in California. He did pretty well for himself, of course. And he even like the, the whistleblower was his grandson who happened to work at Theranos. And he was like, even grilling, like kind of making his grandson sign legal documents and his, the kids, the grandmother stepped in and was like, you're kind of being weird around our grandchild. Like, you know, <laughs> this is, you know, like, anyway. <clears throat> so, 
yeah, I don't think this is, this is beyond reproach that in some ways, a lot of this stuff in particular, I'll say right now, it seems the intellectual dark web, there are media platforms and various kind of, I don't know, I, this sounds, this is where the conspiratorial shit because of the language I'm about to use. But it's like, you know, Peter Thiel sends his lieutenant, Eric Weinstein, out to, you know, put the word out. And, you know, he literally goes and calls Sam Harris and, and has like a thing where he goes onto Sam Harris's podcast and is like, hey, I think you're dealing with this situation poorly and let's change it. And they're literally on the podcast talking about that. And Sam's like, oh, yeah, you're my new friend. And it's just like, and then, you know, they have the Dave Rubin report and they have all these, you know, the idea revolution stuff. And why, while I don't disagree with, you know, the vast majority of utterances that Eric Weinstein says, I do find it peculiar. You know, it's like, okay, you know, like it's, it's just odd to me, the whole thing and everybody seems a little, you know, relate. And then also that kind of strange, I don't know if it's strange, but it's definitely something that one might note if they ever see a tweet by Pinker, it seems like every once in a while, or not every once in a while, but frequently enough that I noticed that like Bill Gates is like, he's the best, you know, and it's like, Jesus, you know. And then also the uh, edge.org and their billionaires dinner, you know, like they have those photos and all that. See what I do with my time. Um, Man, it seems like this needs to just have been an episode. You're breaking huge story. <laughs> Journalist Ryan. Mm. I didn't know this was coming out tonight. So the intellectual dark web is a some sort of public relations campaign of the gods of Olympus billionaire class. For many, because For, uh, yeah. of well, or at least some subsection of it. Because okay, I'm that's too small. Because the the Olympus god billionaires thing is a big tent. Yeah, and they bicker amongst each other. So this is the reactionary wing of the Olympian god billionaires, who are stuck in an antiquated conservative notion of certain aspects of social issues, yep. and they have uh, released. The minion, Eric Weinstein, out into the world, their lieutenant, to go recruit an army of quote-unquote intellectual warriors, dark warriors, to uh, combat the radical, social justice, politically correct left that they saw uh, metastasizing out of Berkeley or wherever it came from. I didn't uh, know this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, like, you know, you come here to me for this kind of information. Is that a, 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 like somewhat in the ballpark of what you're suggesting is this obviously tongue-in-cheek conspiracy theory or whatever? Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that there's... Yeah, like, and I just, if, if we're going to talk about this other thing with the, 
you know, you got my analogy, you got the resource enrichment, you've got the elite overproduction and fragmentation, you know, and the influence that billionaires are having at this point in this sort of new slash modern gilded age um, or present day gilded age, then yeah, it makes sense to me that why wouldn't it also, I mean, if they're having all the lobbyist stuff happening, if they're, you know, convincing, uh, you know, Charles Schumer to, you know, keep down the kind of tax rates for themselves or whatever, and he can just say, hey, that's my base. I'm just, you know, doing what they asked or whatever. Um, yeah, I don't, why can't they do that in a social realm? And if they all have these fucking media situations, all, and it's kind of a strong word, but if they put money towards various media um you know that's kind of the the way it seems to be the other thing would be like the uh, templeton foundation which is um that guy whatever john templeton or whatever he put this huge you know fund together to uh you know fund the big questions but you know there's a huge chunk of that that's just his cuz he was i think he was catholic or whatever so it's really religious you know there's a component there that wants to support that as much as anything. Right. They, they And they're upfront about that, right? That's like in the mission statement or something that it's all about God and shit like that. Well, I mean, they're upfront about it on the one side, but then they also have this sort of secular type seeming anyway side where it is just people getting money from it. And every time anybody gets money from that, who's just a scientist who doesn't have any affiliation with religions or anything, you know, Jerry Coyne's just like, fraud, fraud fraud you know or whatever <laughs> but uh jerry coins an evolutionary biologist who's trying to break it into the public intellectual realm and it's i don't know how well it's working but I don't uh think it, i don't think it's working probably not but he's out there people um he's no sean carroll he's no sean carroll he's no lawrence krauss is no lawrence he's probably Krause. not even a massimo piliucci yeah i guess probably not no no but you know, he feels, you know, he, he, I see that frequently enough, but so, but there's, you know, it, it doesn't, you don't have to be, you know, that's not a requirement. And there does seem to be a side of it. That's just, yeah, you know, you want to do science, you know, answer the big questions, you know? And then there's the other side that's like, Oh, Dominus or whatever, you know? And the light comes down through the stained glass. <clears throat> <laughs> so, yeah, that's kind of the so that's another avenue that where somebody who's super rich wants to have influence even beyond their death, um, and it just kind of I, I why would it why would it not be the case that that's kind of the thing? Maybe very well coincidental that for instance, Peter Thiel is going to hire a managing director who has similar kinds of views to you know himself or whatever or they're at least amenable in their relationship and there's some trust there because hey this is my financial you know uh um you know whatever capital investment group or something like that you know uh and Just, i want somebody yeah, to trust <clears throat> but still i'm getting a little bit distracted by you know this is going out into the world and just so People don't get incorrect information from the Donnellers' mm. philosophy. I believe that he pronounces it teal. <laughs> I was going to let it go, but you kept saying it wrong over and over again. Anyway. 
what I love is that you know. <laughs> so there you have it, folks. Um, that's, is that the guild, the gilded part? Like, you know, all this crap well, underneath. You know, I'm still you're hoping like, for the check, Pete. <laughs> By the way, billionaires out there, the daughter's philosophy is not yet oh, yeah. spoken for. <laughs> We're not on the bankroll yet. Yeah, so if you don't want us to publish... Oh, shit, we probably already have. God damn it. Uh, I was going to hold him for ransom with my ideas, which... <laughs> they're fucking spectacular. Anyway, um, so, yeah, that's... Uh, that's. I mean, that's pretty much all I've got. <laughs> Turns out... Um, but that was my thinking about all this stuff. You know, what's going on? You, know, you got these guys who are... You know, this sort of loosely brought together group that I think is just playing a part, you know, a role in this point where everybody's kind of freaking out. And in a way, it's kind of like, calm down, everything's fine. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a fair-ish characterization of at least a portion of this loose and un like there's no official registration to the intellectual <laughs> dark web but i think many of them are well labeled by this you know i don't know even when they started using the word this way but of these reactionaries that they, they noticed that society was moving to the quote unquote left in this domain, that there was some change happening and they said they wanted to pull the, pull the reins, push the brakes. Uh, no, 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 stop that. There's only two sexes. There's or genders. Yeah. And, you know, uh, mm-hmm. I uh, I don't have any opinion right now about your conspiracy theory version that it's some <laughs> sort of billionaire class originated purposeful propaganda campaign it could be I would say can I just interject real quick I would say that they're not like you know generals around the battlefield you know, where they've got the toys in the on the table and, like, one person takes that stick and is like, okay, you move Eric Weinstein over here and then I'm going to move, you know, Peterson in this direction. You know, we're going to attack on all sides. You know, I don't think that right. there's anything it's like that. Not it's that just, coordinated, yeah. Right, it's not a coordinated effort in that way. Well, no, they these people... Sam They're Harris, gods. in this theory, would be a useful idiot, right? He wouldn't <laughs> yeah. know... That when he is going to all these speaking engagements and choosing his podcast topics and stuff, that he was doing the bidding of one of the Olympian gods. He would just be a pawn on the chessboard, moving to the, you know, they, they know what right. he's going to do. Yeah, you're going to move a couple squares ahead and then try to take this piece and do that. Yeah. But the overall thing is just like a, you know, uh, 
we will influence this sector and this is our general strategy by, you know, uh, getting into boards in various foundations, creating foundations and financially supporting all sorts of things. And so, you know, if you were to be like, well, those, those Koch brothers, they're, they're supporting that right-wing nonsense or something like that. Somebody on Reddit can be like, well, they support PBS, so I don't know. And they can cross their arms and act like, yeah. But it, it's not so simple. You know, they're wanting to influence all th- types of things. I think there's some sort of uproar about some conservative couple or whatever um, or something like that. They're billionaires, of course, and they've like bought some whole range of local news stations, and now the local news stations can't say certain types of things, and you know what I mean. Like they've had an influence over local news. Oh, right, and then the they, uh, the sort of John Stewart, John Oliver types can come up with those awesome clip. Yeah, mashups Montages, where they yeah. all read the same copy that was sent out to all, you know. Right. And they're supposed so to present it as though this is a personal statement by me, your trusted news anchor, but it came from the bunker, right. the cave, the, well. Yes. I get, yeah. And also, I also, like, there was that one article, maybe it was in Medium, but it was uh, Douglas Rushkoff, and he was talking about how he had that meeting with those billionaire power people. He didn't name names, I don't think. And, but they were basically like, how do we get off the planet? You know, because like, <laughs> they, they were like, it's going to shit. When it does, I'm out. You know, like, how do we do this? You know, and he was just like, what? You know, like, yeah, you know, like, Jesus Christ. Um. Anyway, I don't know if... It, it, anyway, there's enough relatively reliable sources out there about some of the behavior... That it makes me think, well, why is it, why is, why is like the public intellectual domain out of bounds? You know, like why suddenly would, no, oh, but no, it doesn't work there, you know? Um, so that's, you know, you got a bunch of hustlers. Well, in, in theory, it should be more difficult or impossible to pull off on quote unquote smart people on intellectuals. Yeah, in theory, but in practice. Than anyone else. But, and that's, you know, to get into the, even more into the weeds on personal attacks or whatever, who in this intellectual dark web isn't a, at the very least, so there, and this is, I think, a trait that is more easily harnessed into this useful idiot campaign that they're true believers in something mm-hmm. right i mean obviously jordan peterson is but i yeah. would say that sam harris is too even though it's not even though his belief isn't in god he has multiple claims that he is very dogmatic and absolutist about and he's like no this well, I, yeah. this is a fact <laughs> yeah. and uh, obviously, Shapiro is like that. Ruben, is, well, people like Ruben and Rogan and stuff. I don't know if they would even count because they don't even really—they're obviously not intellectuals. They're media figures, whatever. Yeah, but they're—they the they provide a platform that gets used. 
That's the useful idiot part. <clears throat> well, right, they use their platform, right. Yeah. But the ones that are intellectuals, and then you go to the ones that are sort of more straddling the line between are we in the IDW or are we just people, unaffiliated, uh, like Jonathan Haidt and Steven Pinker and stuff. Right. I think that those guys, too, they, they all have something about which they're dogmatic. And convinced. Yeah, for sure. And I think if you have any of those things, you are exploitable by one of the gods Mm. to their purposes. Yeah, right. No, for sure. All they have to do is pinpoint what that is. They might even happen upon it by accident, you know. Um, But yeah, I think that definitely... You can be exploited when you have dogma. And, you know, when a lot of these gods, I don't even know if, like, look, look at the billionaire. I wouldn't call him a god necessarily because I don't know what he's a god of. <laughs> <clears throat> but Trump, you know, honestly, I don't know what he's the god of fuck up. I don't know. Chaos. Yeah, the god of chaos, right? Um, but he's not respected by the other gods. Not one bit. And if anything, he's kind of almost like a sub-god is being manipulated by the actual, like, Zeus-level gods, you know? Um, you know, but it's just, it's, I don't remember even the point that I was going to make. It's it's that, it's at that point in the, the conversation. But. Um, that would be, that could easily be one of the characters in the story or whatever, you know? You got the sort of Kafka-esque guardian at the gate that lets people up onto Mount Olympus and Trump shows up at the gate and shows his tax returns. Ha! (laughs) He proves it somehow to the gatekeeper. Yeah, I'm in the club. I got a billion bucks. And the gatekeeper is just this optimal, ultimate uh, algorithm. You know, he's just like, I'm not going to evaluate your character. I'm just going to say, oh, this is the billionaire Olympus mountain, and you have a billion, so you're on. Yeah. But then he gets up there, and the other gods are all like, "What the fuck are you doing here? <laughs> you're not a, you know, you got that from your dad and uh, scams. Mm-hmm. You don't, you don't belong." And then you know, but he's like, "Yeah, I do." <laughs> and he's kind of ostracized from the other gods, but then he does all kinds of weird, chaotic shit. Yeah. Yeah, he's definitely the god of chaos. Provocative character, but let's not have him have effects on our planet. Oh, too late. Whoops. Whoops. God damn it. Oh shit. Well, this is this is it though, right? If you're going to be a social justice warrior, this is what you get. Anyway, sorry. Oh, uh, you should have just shut up. Well, yeah. According to Ma- a certain major bed or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> the kind of Bill Maher crowd is saying right that the. SJWs, the IDW says the SJWs are <laughs> the reason that Trump is Trump, is president. Yeah. Indeed. In fucking deed. And it's, of course, I don't think that any of these groups really have much power at all in any sense until they do, right? Until they've, they vote in Trump. Right. It's like, it's this weird, they're, who knows, you know, you're going to push things a certain amount. I honestly don't think that these God, Greek billionaire gods know exactly 
whether or not it's going to work. They're kind of, this is going to be, this is as sacrilege as it gets. Are you ready for this one? I like sacrilege. Oh, this is, this is like, if we were better well-known, this is something that would totally get us into trouble. Do I need to sleep with a revolver under my pillow tonight? <laughs> well, not tonight, because they won't have heard it yet, but soon. When the episode is released. <laughs> or, you know, yeah, if it makes its way to the ears. But in a way, I kind of view that a lot of the things they do, they just, they're like, well, let's try this area, because we don't know if it's going to work, but we're going to work it out. We're going to try, and we're going to see if this will have some influence. And they've probably done a number of things that just didn't, that just fell flat, I'm guessing. A few didn't influence on, you know, media, maybe not, direct, you know, who fucking cares about Nova? But if you're hitting Nova and you're hitting this and you're hitting that, you're hitting a whole bunch of them, you know, wow. You know, okay, maybe you're having, you're starting to have a, a net effect, you know, casting a wide enough net and having enough of an influence at the surface to have some kind of trickle down or <laughs> anyway. So, but they don't know. But in some ways, they might see that there's some big successes from time to time, and they might be like, whoa. And as I recall, that's how Al-Qaeda felt about 9-11. There's the, put your revolver under your pillow, but don't shoot your head off. Um, <laughs> Are you making an, a politically incorrect analogy? That's right. So <laughs> the way that, you know, I recall was they were like, yeah, we're going to put some fucking dudes on a plane. There's this big, long lead up, long run up to a short jump. And they're going to learn how to fly planes. They're going to learn how to, like, kill people with fucking martial arts, you know. And they're going to, we're going to put the most badass believers that we possibly can on these planes. And, you know, fuck the people on the planes, but the idea is that if you can get to the cockpit, you fly those fuckers into these buildings. And when it did happen, and the news got back to the cave, they were like, holy shit, it worked. You know, like, you know, this cockamamie idea, because they had tried other things that didn't work as well. They tried bombing right, okay, the sure. World Trade Center, the basement, and it didn't work as well. They had tried, this is you know, bombing. Approach. Uh, yeah, exactly. They tried bombing. We or, don't give a shit about the lives of these minions. No. And if it works, we hit the jackpot. And if it doesn't, we can afford the loss. So we gamble. Right. And then, you know, they, but they, you know, they also, they just, you know, exactly. There was something. For some reason, I feel it's so crucial that I say it, but there was some kind of attack on a Navy ship in the fucking Red Sea or something like that. That didn't work as well either. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So they're going to try it and try it there. And then eventually they, you know, they score big, you know, like the gamble worked. And I kind of think that that might be the strategy of some of these billionaires. After all, they do have the fucking resources to be like, well, that didn't work, but, you know, we'll try again because the fucking $100 million keeps raking in every, you know, six months or whatever it is, and we already have a bank full of billions. So that's kind of what I was thinking, you know. Uh, and also, my other thing about billionaires is that, and you've, I've said this to you before, and you were kind of like, eh, I don't know, and I respect that. No, I don't. No. Um, but like, I, and, and I think you don't, you don't totally buy into it because you don't like to have to, 
you you don't always you don't accept a hard limit, and I get that. But here's the provocative saying then. I would say no billionaire becomes a billionaire uh, by accident. That's like to to become a billionaire takes a lot of greedy effort. <laughs> that would be my statement. That's a hard limit that you probably don't accept, but that's my thinking. Is like how else are you going to fucking make a billion dollars? Number 1, you have to have earned something. So yeah, sure, maybe you're born into it. Fine. Okay, that's an accident. But I'm talking All about right, those What about Zuckerberg? What we don't have to get in yeah. No, 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 right, no, no. I don't totally accept it. I hear what you're saying, that's fine. but whatever. The idea is that, well, maybe I can, I mean, I'll modify it and just get to the point that the vast majority of people who become billionaires in their lifetime not are born billionaires. They become billionaires because they want a billion plus dollars. They don't become billionaires because it's like, well, let's take a look and see if we can. No one's going to risk their life like that or their livelihood. Once they've got it, they're going to try and you know, whatever it is, millions of dollars, they're going to work their way up to that point if they want that. There's lots of people who are millionaires who don't become billionaires. And maybe to some extent there's like, oh, you know, they didn't hit on the right ideas or whatever. But what I can what I can see from the descriptions of billionaires is that they don't tip well. They don't, you know, spend <laughs> money, you know, yeah. really in a way. They don't do any of these. They are keeping it for themselves. They're fucking Scrooge. You know, yeah. every choice, every decision they make is based on them making or keeping as much money as possible and making sure they, they get it. And at the behest of anybody else, like, fuck them, I don't care. I'm having the billions. And I'm, so under this conspiracy theory, even when they are, <laughs> quote unquote, donating money to PBS or something, it's, well, we're doing that so that it's a propaganda campaign and we can slam the other billionaires and get more of them. You know, that even their philanthropy is ultimately in the interest of their own wealth, right? Well, like, I usually don't hear story. it. I don't hear it in that sense. I usually hear people say it's a huge tax write-off. So they don't oh, have to. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. So that's the reason why their you know, philanthropy is such a big deal to these people, to an extent. So... <laughs> If you don't hear from me in two months, <laughs> you'll know why. I hit a nerve with the billionaires. Fucking billionaires. But right, okay, that's another point that I'm sympathetic to. Uh, once you get your 10 million, do you say, ah, now I can be a pure scientist? I no longer have to be concerned about acquiring deodorant and steak dinners for the rest of my life. My maintenance is addressed. And now I can make some good ideas. Or yeah. do you say, now that I have 10 million, I can finally leverage myself up into the through the Olympus gate. I can turn this 10 million into a billion. And then which project do you engage upon? Okay, so here's a personal anecdote from myself to you here it is Lee, uh, Liam and I my son throwing his name out there anyway whatever we Long are this photo isn't included <laughs> anyway I'm like it's out there but you know Instagram set to private um, so he and I are playing the Zelda Nintendo Switch 
game together because it's, you know, fucking 21st century. We're going to bond over football. Come on. We're going to bond over video games. Okay. I check myself and I'm like, oh, that's an interesting feeling. When we get down below like 20,000 rupees, I kind of like need to like be like, dude, stop freaking out. I'm going around collecting as much things I can turn in for cash. I'm like, fuck the objectives of winning the game. You know, I'm just like, no, we need more money. It, it, there's something there, right? There's some kind of craziness that's, that goes into being greedy. And I think that's, I think a lot of people selfishly <clears throat> think not the other guy first. You know, they think me first. And I think there are scenarios that bring that out in people. And unfortunately, for the fucking video game, I am one of them. And I noticed that about myself. And I'm like, Jesus, relax. You know, like, it's not even real anything, you know? And I'm all bent out of shape about it. And I can imagine that on an even grander scale with larger stakes, people would be much more willing if they are have any tendency towards that kind of... uh you know, behavior or emotion or whatever, that they would be willing to make certain kind of decisions. That's and not see people for the human beings that they are. And regardless of whether you say they have rights, you know, if you can even just put yourself in someone else's shoes, which aren't nearly as fortunate as yours, you could think in your own selfish way, oh, that would suck, you know, or even just. They'll let the hormones take over for the people that you love, if you love any. Scrooge, you know, and I don't know. It's just, uh, I got to wonder, was Charles Dickens during the Gilded Age? Gilded Age? I kind of feel like he probably was, wasn't he? I either or slightly before, I don't, I'm not sure. I guess my question is, is Scrooge a product a, oh, a literary yeah. product of the Gilded Age. Let me just take a look. Uh, Christmas Carol. Uh, 1843, no. <laughs> so bef- yeah, before. Right? It was before, yeah. So, well, whatever. <laughs> well, then shame on them. They even do better. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, you go far enough back and... I know. Well, there's a cycle. You can find all kinds of great ideas that lost to the greedy, patriarchal Scrooges. Yeah. Yeah, even if we get beyond this, which I think... I don't see why we don't get beyond this. Um... You know this this gilded age that we're in today. Um, eventually, you know, it's going to go back to the next gilded age potentially. You know, you know, like if it's a cycle that we can't seem to get out of, if it's a cycle, which you know, so far. how are we going to? So we're in the trough. How do we get back upwards? Are we still headed on the downslope, like it seems to misanthropes like me? Yeah, or I think we is are. there any up in sight? Well, here's the worst part: the trough, the last trough, was like a fucking flat, 
bottom valley for a while. For so, quite okay, a while. Just to make you know? sure that I understand, was the last trough like 1933 and then the last peak like 1969 or something or even earlier uh like 60 after world war ii and or and the trough as i see it the flat bottom trough component as i see it goes from about 1870 to about 1910 and then it starts to pick up even through the depression through oh okay so it, all right that the depression wasn't a trough no i'm confused the depression was crap but uh one of the things that came out of the depression which was only a 10 year period really you know there's a lot of great stuff that came out of it and one of the other things that happened cuz the depression came on the heels of world war 1 at least in the united states and i know that uh, germany also and various countries throughout the West also were hard up quite a bit following World War One and the Roaring Twenties and all that. But uh, out of you know the de- the Depression, and, well, really during the Depression, people were um, still coming up with innovations that would you know allow it to really start to keep rising. So, for instance, um, in the Midwest, you know the the Central Midwest, if you will, the I want to say it's called the Ogallala Aquifer. This is the Central Midwest of the United States. Anyone it's not from the U.S. The U.S. Anyway, or it doesn't live in the U.S. The Ogallala Aquifer is this large under, you know, this is this groundwater aquifer that is water that comes down from the Rockies and just pools up in you know Kansas and you know, uh, Eastern Colorado and, you know, parts of probably Oklahoma and Arkansas and Missouri and all that. It's just this big area where the breadbasket is. And, you know, geologists figured out there for the most part that, hey, we can tap this water, not too dissimilarly than people were figuring out probably prior to that, that we can tap the ground for oil and refine it and make our cars go you know that kind of stuff so that was one major innovation the other major innovation that came along was soil science and so with you know the idea of you know how to what's the best way to do agricultural practices with respect to the soils so you've got the water you got the soils now working out not only that but during the depression era there was this i don't remember the name of the group but it was funded by the united states states government where people just went and just like built trails and uh you know uh big you know lodges in the parks and things like that and it was a source of employment for a lot of people and that's kind of the the i guess you could say the sort of the foundation of a lot of if you go to any of the parks the foundational pathways and trails and etc that were laid down by people who didn't have jobs who were given an opportunity through the US government to create you know, a lot of the spots that you would walk through, traverse, and hang out in, you know, uh, at these parks and things like that. So there's another, you know, really successful program that came out of that. So things were still kind of on the rise, and there was a lot going on for people of the middle class, and there was at least some concern about the people, even though the Depression was terrible and it was selfishness that clearly led to the downfall People, it was still just keep on going up through the 40s, 
uh, and then it peaked in the 60s, and then it went started from the 60s <laughs> declining, and by the time you got to the 80s, um, everyone's finally finished with their idea about how to conquer Ralph Nader's push towards more accountability for corporations, and then you get the lobbyists, and apparently that's how the story goes. And we start going downhill from there. But we're still on the decline, as I understand. Would there be any sort of ephemeral mini-bump in the 90s, or not even? That was all just decline. All decline. With respect oh to employment prospects... <laughs> what I'm, I'm getting lost, I guess. What is even the measure... <laughs> All right, so dimensions of well-being. Let's see here. All right, um, and these are proxies. So employment, short for employment prospects. So it's the ease with which workers can secure jobs. It's the balance between labor demand and labor supply. When labor demand grows faster than supply, employment prospects become better. If demand for labor lags behind its supply, employment prospects get worse. I'm reading and there from, was no. I thought there was good times in the you know the in the the boom of the '90s and the internet got started and all this you know good stuff happened. Not, there may have been bubbles not, and stuff, but I don't think it had at least as far as these people are their data that they've collected is concerned that it that it had the kind of effects on the overall trajectory of these patterns. Anyway, this is all from Peter Turchin's. You go to peterturchin.com. But he's le- he's legit he's legitimate he's not he's out of the University of Connecticut um, and this is his like second career in academia if you will um, he's also part of the Evolution Institute with uh, David Sloan Wilson um, who's also another you know person that I like his stuff. Um, And I like the Evolution Institute. I like the kind of ideas that they're trying to take evolutionary ideas and apply them to trying to come up with solutions. What billionaire founds that fucking corporate bullshit? That's a good question. Let's take... I don't think Um, anyone. They're fucking poor and they're always asking for money. Yeah, yeah. Of course, the one you like is not part of the conspiracy. (laughs) How do we get out of this? Hasn't this been a long one? If, If the 60s were the peak... It's getting to be a long downturn here. Like, uh, well, like I told you before, the downturn from like 1830 or so to 1870, then it was just like kind of bottomed out more or less to 1910. So that's like, you know, 40 years of being at the bottom. That's 40 years of a Gilded Age. I don't know if so it's going to bottom out. I still out. have to hope for some medical aging fix if I'm ever going to experience anything decent. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, fuck. Oh, man. If you go to, like, the Evolution Institute's website, just looking at the pictures alone, I'm like, oh, my God. This is not... <laughs> I don't this is not billionaire funded <laughs> literally they're just like pro-social people uh, is it yeah. .geocities uh, it's evolution dash 
Institute.org. All right, well, fuck. All right, so there's no hope. <laughs> like every other Dawdlers episode, we're bumping along the bottom. We're never going to get out. There's no billionaire coming to the rescue. There's no gods. There's no uh, end in sight. Climate change is happening, and we've got a lot of garbage, and people are worried about what gender they are, and they won't make cakes for each other while <laughs> we're, you know, people are starving and being murdered, and oh my god. Wait, wait, wait. You just got to read Pinker's stuff. Everything's fine. Well, Everything's I can't fine. read Pinker's stuff anymore. He's just a shill for some hidden billionaire agenda yeah probably whistling past the graveyard <laughs> can that be the title of this episode if whistling like. past the graveyard that'll hey, get him. we we don't have any uh, Cokehead telling us what it has to be. Nice. Like, yeah, that wasn't our name to begin with. It was Cochrane. But we got into the hard stuff, high fiving each other. We're like, yeah, we'll name ourselves Coke, but we'll spell it different. Sorry, I'm off the edge clearly here. Can I just not believe in the billionaires like I don't believe in any of the other gods? Sure. Absolutely. You just, you be you. Fuck the SJWs and fuck the IDWs and double fuck the billionaires. Well, we're moving on.